Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of the highlight sessions of the 2021 event, which featured more than 150 storytellers and was explored through our theme, Mulat Sarira, self-reflection. So please settle in and let the magic of our 18th year continue. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this year's Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. This year, the festival returns with the theme Mulat Sarira, self-reflection, which is drawn from a Balinese Hindu philosophy. From the 8th to the 17th of October, we will be exploring the meaning of self-reflection, cultural introspection, and human rights, examining who we are, what unites and divides us, and what drives our actions. My name is Clover Hogan. I am a 22-year-old climate activist and the founding executive director of Force of Nature. We are a youth nonprofit mobilizing mindsets for climate action. Today, I have the absolute pleasure and privilege of being joined by Maya Rose Craig for today's session, which is We Have a Dream. Now, Maya Rose is a 19-year-old birder and conservationist, an environmental campaigner, and she has already been awarded an honorary degree at just 19 and has recently published her very own book. So today I welcome Maya Rose for our conversation. Hi. Hello, thank you so much for joining us. How are you feeling today? I'm good, yeah, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. And I'm <laughs> super excited for today's conversation and to hear more about your book, more about your work and all of the exciting things that you're um, yeah, diving into at the moment. But first up, I'd love to hear, what was your catalyst for the book, Maya Rose? Um, I mean, immediately, I just find that really hard to answer just because I've been doing environmental activism and climate change activism for like eight years now. I started when I was 11 and um, so I've always been very much in those spaces, um, but I always have a very different perspective from a lot of the people I talk to about a lot of environmental issues, just because my family or half my family's from Bangladesh and I'm very aware of, you know, the day-to-day the -day really difficult effects of climate change, which I think people in the West aren't very aware of or at least feel very distant and so I've become I guess a bit of an advocate for people from the global south who like I said are dealing with these issues day to day and um, the more time I spent in sort of these climate change or environmental circles the more I noticed that it was this handful of like white western activists who were getting media platformed over and over again and I knew there were so many other amazing people out there from all over the world, from lots of different perspectives. Um, but it was a real struggle to find any of them. So in the end, I decided that I was gonna track some of these people down and I was gonna bring them together in a book and give them that opportunity to amplify their voices, which I'm so glad I did because I met so many cool people. That's brilliant. And how did you go about finding these incredible young activists who were very much on the front lines doing the work? Um, yeah, it, it's funny because when I started the book, I thought it would be really easy, um, which was so 
naive I guess um like I had a big spreadsheet of people and I was like tracking them all down but um there were just various things that um became difficult and I, I made it more difficult because I had a certain set of requirements as well um like the fact I wanted it to be 50 50 on gender or the fact that I wanted people from you know six different continents from all over the world um so really quickly that really big list that I'd started with got whittled down and whittled down um so I spent about six months tracking people down in the end and it, it ended up very much just being um very grassroots almost I suppose like me knowing someone who knew someone who happened to know someone who would be great for the book um but even though that was really difficult and it took a lot of time um like I said I do think it was really worth it because I found some amazing people you know really doing stuff on the ground who really were on the front lines um and yeah they all had really interesting things to say because of that perspective so and because for a lot of them, they didn't really have that connection to Western media and Western narratives around environmental issues. Um, so, yeah, it, it was hard, but it was worth it. And if we look at the kind of mainstream climate narrative today, you know, so much of it is still defined by polar bears and solar mm. panels. And often the very real human stories, human impacts, you know, human plight um, are, are kind of left out of that climate conversation. So from your view and, and over the course of, you know, your activism since the age of 11 and, and also writing this book, why is it do you think that climate justice and social justice have become so kind of divorced in our minds and really spoken about as two separate issues? Um yeah I, I mean I think there's loads of different reasons why that happened and I do think interestingly there's been a lot of pushback against this the last few years especially from younger generations who you know understand that all of these environmental issues are totally interlinked with like um you know pushing back against like racism or classism or you know poverty or whatever um, you know that that you have to tackle all of these issues to tackle any of them. Um, but I think historically there's a lot of reasons for that. I think within the West it's always been a very um, white middle class movement historically just because of the people who were able to dedicate their time to something that isn't just living. Um, you know, like going to work, getting your kids to school, things like that. Um, and so I think that shaped the way that, you know, narratives formed in the first place. Um, but I think also it's very um, cyclical because we don't really hear for the most part from activists in the global South. Um, people don't know about their perspectives. They don't know where they're coming on issues. Um, and so there's this real lack of awareness of why we should even be pushing for that in the first place. Um, which I think is so important. And, you know, a lot of these issues, I think we talk about them in terms of diversity for the sake of diversity, which I think is really important. Um, but the way that we're tackling environmental issues at the moment is, like you said, so separate from people and their everyday experiences. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, like in terms of fast fashion, just because Bangladesh is one of the 
you know, garment industry capitals of the world. Um, you know, the way in the West that we talk about fast fashion is always just, we need to abolish it, we need to get rid of it, we need to boycott it. But no one ever talks about the people on the other end of it, you know, the hundreds of thousands of women who rely on it to support themselves. And so I think really what we're pushing for is a sustainable way of solving environmental issues while, you know, paying attention to people's experiences and helping and supporting the people involved. Absolutely. And talking to, you know, some of those frontline voices, what were some of the things that you learned personally over the course of writing this book? Um, I, I learned so much. Um, it was really interesting, actually. And there were some people I spoke to who so clearly just wanted someone to speak to, if that makes sense, um, because there were, you know, a good handful of them had literally never really been interviewed or anything before, and they had so much to say. Um, you know, so lots of them were just talking about their own experiences in terms of dealing with environmental issues. You know, you, we, I was talking to people who um, were dealing with um, deforestation or sea levels rising or their local coral reefs bleaching or drought and losing their crop, you know, um, various things. But um, I think a lot of them came from very different places than me in terms of environmental issues. And I think that was what I found really interesting. Um, so something that is very important to me is indigenous people's rights, especially in terms of, um, you know, environmentalism, just because I think a lot of people in the West don't realize how modern day conservation environmentalism is sort of being, well, is being used as a form of modern day colonialism. You know, it's stealing land from people um, under the guise of helping the planet. And so for a lot of indigenous people, they don't really see themselves aligned with this um, international environmental movement, despite, like I said, being on the real front lines of a lot of these issues and being the people standing between, um, you know, destruction <laughs> and protection. Um, so I think some one of my favourite people I spoke to uh, was this woman called Archana Sarang from um, northern India, who was indigenous. And um, she spoke a lot about how, um, you know, her local community and other local communities um, were being separated from their land, how she'd gotten into politics because she wanted to um, protect her tribe and other local communities. Um, but, you know, it wasn't all on the defensive. What I found really interesting was her talking about how they'd been doing various, very sustainable things for up, you know, up to hundreds of years um, that were the perfect sustainable solutions to various issues that we're trying to solve at the moment. They had um, technology and ideas that she wanted to share on a wider scale, um, you know, all across India. Um, but yeah, that, there, were, there were lots of things. And I, you know, there are 30 people, I'm not gonna go through all of them. So I guess well, um, we'll have to read the book for that but um no it's it's really really fascinating and I think um you touch on a really great point there as well which is that often when we do begin to talk about the role of climate justice or you know platforming frontline voices 
it can be through the lens of you know these frontline communities being the worst affected by the climate crisis which is absolutely true mm-hmm. we often lack the nuance and the appreciation of how these frontline communities have also developed ingenious solutions to the climate crisis mm-hmm. they've been having to face the impacts of you know climate adaptation and environmental racism for many many decades mm-hmm. and so rather than you know just highlighting the kind of victim narrative it's really important that we go to those voices to understand well how can we actually do things differently you know what are those grassroots solutions that already exist and i think i mean it's incredible that you've managed to pull together these voices into a book um but what i've seen you know participating in previous cop conferences and um uh, well many many climate environmental events as you have too um is just the utter lack of youth representation indigenous representation mm-hmm. representation of frontline communities and so to the people who are in those governing positions of power or who are choosing you know which voices are platforms um what would your call to action be to them to ensure that we are hearing from the voices that are important and that are going to both wake us up to the crisis but also guide us toward some of these solutions that already exist today yeah i um so I, I was writing We Have a Dream last summer and one of the reasons that it felt really urgent personally was because at the time COP26 was supposedly only a few months away and it's now once again um, only a few months away and I it, it felt particularly urgent to be hearing those voices. I think um, events like G7 conferences in particular, but also COP26 are endlessly frustrating just because you always have um, these dominant voices within global politics and those are for the most part Western countries, um, you know, the economic strongholds on this planet and they are not the countries who are currently dealing with climate change and other environmental issues. And I think that totally shapes the way that we think about solving these issues and that we think about, you know, pushing forwards. Um, Because I think really what needs to happen is support for the countries who are currently dealing with this. Um, You know, I use Bangladesh as an example again. Um, That's a country that's really struggling with climate change. It's absolutely not... um, economically dominant compared to somewhere like the UK or America. Um, It's dealing with flooding, um, you know, massive cyclones, loss of crop, drought. Um, But one of the reasons that it's a country that is struggling so much to cope with the effects of climate change um, is due to the long-lasting effects of colonisation and the way that that completely destabilised um that area of the continent um and i think that it's really important that stuff like that is acknowledged and i think a word that's floating around a lot these days is reparations um in lots of different forms but i think for me um if we ever were having conversations about reparations it wouldn't necessarily be um you know sending massive chunks of money around the world it would be supporting these countries um through these various issues that they're struggling with because of the West um, and helping these people move forward from that. Um, But I think as a young person in general, and this was something 
that was felt by various people that I was interviewing. I think, um, you know, issues like climate change are endlessly frustrating, um, partially because I know that they could have been solved before I was ever even born. Um, like I was born in 2002, I'm 19. And um, it's something that I've been campaigning about my entire teenage years, like literally. And um, the more I look into it, the more upsetting it is. And I think the way I prefer to frame it in these conversations is it, you know, every day that climate change isn't solved, I think we should regard as an active decision from our governments, especially in the West, because they have the tools and they have the money, we have the technology. Um, so I would personally call that an active decision. Um, so I think if I was in a room full of politicians, um, I'd give them a good shouting to inside and say, I just want to see something from you, just anything at this point. Mm. I um, finally found the courage to read the IPCC report that came mm. out recently. And I think the thing that really you know, stayed with me beyond the kind of doomsday um, facts and statistics, which I was expecting going into it, was this 50-50 prediction um, and this estimate that, you know, we have a kind of 50-50 chance of being able to avoid the worst of climate tipping points. And what that tells me is that we effectively have two paths before us. You know, we have the one path of climate dystopia um, of, you know, continuing to lose frontline communities of cities underwater and empty supermarket shelves, you know, the kind of future that really isn't even worth imagining or giving much thought to. Um, and the alternative, which is, you know, we do everything in our power to create the world that we know is possible to, you know, transform our economies, to transform the food industry, fashion, et cetera. But as you said, you know, inaction really is a vote for that first scenario. You know, inaction is a choice for that climate dystopia. Now, when I was 11, I was growing up in Australia's tropical North Queensland, and I was fishing frogs out of the toilet and dodging snakes that hung from the ceiling. So I was very lucky in that I had this, you know, kind of bubble of nature around me and nature was never an other. Um, but when I was 11, I discovered the world of documentaries and I watched, you know, Food Inc and The Cove and An Inconvenient Truth. Mm -hmm. And I sat as an 11 year old girl, you know, glued to my computer screen, staring at these images of million year old forests being bulldozed to produce Big Macs, you know, watching these images of frontline communities, entire cities being swept away by rising floods and, and sea levels. And I felt, I didn't have the word for it back then, but incredibly eco-anxious. Um, and amid the kind of anger and frustration and, and grief, I also felt a lot of confusion. I couldn't understand how this was the first time I was learning about the climate and ecological crisis. You know, we hadn't heard about it in school. We hadn't heard about it in the media. We hadn't talked about it at the you know dinner table. So... I'd love to hear from you, Maya Rose, you know, what was that first wake up moment for you? And how did that lead to the work that you went on to do as a conservationist and as an environmental campaigner? Um, 
I I think in in some ways, which is a kind of boring answer, I never had a single wake up moment, um, which is for various reasons. Um, I think I think partially it is to do with my age, but which I don't know if you can relate. Um, but I had um, very environmentally friendly parents who were very big on environmental issues. So I grew up hearing about, you know, climate change and deforestation and animals going extinct. It was something um, that was a reality during my childhood. And I think I always knew it was really upsetting. But it wasn't until I was a bit older, sort of eight or nine, that I realised how truly upsetting all of that was. Um, so I was very lucky in terms of I had people to talk to about these issues. Um, but I think the thing that has shaped my activism by far the most has been the fact that um, I, I, I had a very lucky childhood and my parents took me traveling a lot um, for, for bird watching because we were all very into bird watching. And um, we, I, I've been to places all over the world um, but I think the very first thing that ever had like a really massive impact on me was they took me out of school school for six months when I was nine and we went to South America for six months, um, which was fantastic. There were so many, many amazing animals, amazing birds, um, but I also saw a lot of the realities of environmental destruction you know there was so much deforestation so much I didn't even realize um that all of these places I was driving through at first had once been you know um luscious rainforest or cloud forest and it was it had all been replaced by cattle farms um which obviously destroy the landscape um but something else that also um I think had a really big impact on me is that um we went, we stayed at various places and worked with various people um, that were from indigenous communities or had been set up by indigenous communities. Um, and I spent quite a lot of time talking to a few of them about their perspective on environmental issues and their relationship with the natural world. And it was really interesting. It was very different um, from anything I'd heard from anyone else at that point in time and so I think that had a really influential impact on me um, especially when I was older and able to look back um, and I think every place I've been to since has shaped that a little bit more um, you know where in Indonesia in particular I remember something that really really shocked me at the time was all the palm oil plantations um as I drove through I remember driving for like five or six hours at a time going through you know deforested palm oil plantations where nothing lived um and I found that really shocking at the time but I think the interesting thing is that all of that has also made me think a bit more about environmental issues a bit closer to home in terms of the UK um, I think until I travelled, I never realised how shocking things were in the place where I lived. Like, I'd never noticed because that's how it always was. Um, but the state of our biodiversity is terrible. We're running out of animals and green space and habitat. Um, but anyway, sorry, long, long story short, when I was 11, I set up a blog for various reasons and very quickly... 
I was using that as a tool for campaigning. Um, and then very quickly, I became an environmental activist. And the rest is history, really. And my Rose, you know, you touched on some of those difficult feelings that also fueled your activism and, and that woke you up to the issues, whether that was reading about them or witnessing them, you know, upfront and close and, and personally. Um, you know, to to date, how has eco-anxiety, you know, shaped your activism and, and how do you navigate, you know, doing this work day in, day out as a very young person, you know, having to face up to the issues while also, you know, looking after yourself and, and not just falling into that kind of despair or grief? Um, I, I think eco-anxiety actually used to be a much bigger problem for me and is less so now, and I'm not 100% sure why. Um, so I used to get really, really anxious about the state of the world, the state of the planet, like my future if I was going to have a planet to live on um and I remember being like very angsty and nihilistic about it when I was a teenager you know because I felt like the world was ending the world kind of is ending um and it's a lot like you know there have been some really shocking studies recently showing that like um, between a certain age range, four out of five kids are dealing with eco-anxiety. I know children who are like waking up in the night sobbing because they literally can't, you know, they're so young and they can't mentally cope with the state of the planet that they're living on. Um, I think eco-anxiety is something that people don't realise how big of a deal it actually is. Um, but for me personally, yeah, I, I was very sort of stressed about it all when I was younger and it was really upset and I think a lot of my activism originally came from a place of pure like wanting to survive and wanting a future and like I said feeling like the world was ending and I think as I've gotten older um I don't know maybe I just think about it less um but I I feel less anxious about these things, which is totally paradoxical because I feel way less optimistic about the state of the future, to be honest. Um, but I guess knowing that there's a possibility that we can do the right thing, we just need to do it, um, is really important. Knowing the path for the future that we could take, like you said, we've got two paths in front of us. Um, but yeah, I think in general as a wider issue, um, you know, I think activist mental health is something that needs to be talked about a lot more. I know so many young people that have like given literally everything to a movement and then completely burnt themselves out and just have never returned and it's been years. Um, so I think to really create a sustainable movement, we need to talk about these things and we need to figure out how to tackle them. Absolutely. And um, we we do a lot of research around eco-anxiety at Force of Nature. Um, when I was 16, I had just left COP21. And up until that point, all of my activism had been very much grassroots. Um, after moving to Indonesia at 13, you know, like you said, I was, you know, 
confronted with, you know, issues like palm oil and for three months of the year, you know, the sky just turning this sickly orange color from all of the forest that was being burnt. Um, and so going to COP, it was my first time kind of engaging with these, you know, big decision makers and the very people who, you know, we as a culture had kind of entrusted to, you know, safeguard our future, to, you know, respond to the climate crisis. And I went in with this really kind of starry eyed optimism that all of these leaders would kind of come around the same table and maybe not hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but, you know, really, really take the urgent immediate action that was needed. And instead, I went to something called the Sustainable Innovation Forum, and it was sponsored by the likes of Coca-Cola and BMW and Shell. It was my first true experience of greenwashing on, you know, an epic, epic scale. Um, and I remember thinking, I was like, this is like going to, you know, a conference on lung cancer sponsored by Philip Morris. And I felt so disillusioned and I'd experienced the anxiety and the frustration and anger and, you know, that whole soup of feelings, but I'd never before felt so powerless. And it was when I went, you know, back to um, school at a place called the Green School in Bali, where I was having a conversation with one of my teachers in an environmental studies class. And he introduced me to this word he said this word ecophobia uh it was coined by an a psychologist david sabell in 1996 and it refers to the feeling of powerlessness in the face of cataclysmic environmental change and that was a huge aha moment for me because for one i felt a little bit more normal i'm like okay you know this thing that i'm feeling actually exists it's out there i'm not the only one experiencing it um and you know, for me, that was a, a moment of kind of like you said earlier, you know, we've had the technology and the resources and the solutions for the climate crisis for, you know, decades before either of us were born. And yet what we lack is that, you know, mass mobilization of mindset. We, we lack the people in existing positions of power. We lack people, you know, you know, on the ground being able to meaningfully step up and respond to these challenges. Um, and that for me was the kind of start of researching our relationship between our mental well-being and the climate crisis and mindset. Um, but for me, eco-anxiety didn't become really real until November of 2019 when uh, the fires were raging back home in Australia. And every time I would look down at my phone, I would see the images of you know, my country engulfed in flames and of two billion animals being incinerated by the inferno. And I'd go on my friend's Instagram stories and see them standing on their roofs, you know, holding hoses, trying to beat back the flames until, you know, that smoke and embers, you know, clung to their clothes. And I started spontaneously crying. I would cry in the shower on my way to work, you know, in the middle of meetings. And that was when I started talking to other young people who were in that same boat and had touched on that nihilism that you spoke to and that sense of despair. And I realized at that point, you know, for a long time as a climate activist, I'd been trying to be, you know, I tried to be relentlessly happy and optimistic and determined. And I think a lot of young people are expected to be that way as well it's like great we're handing you the baton you're going to fix the issues you know and there's that real pressure to hold on to the optimism 
But I was talking to a, a psychologist, a psychotherapist rather, Caroline Hickman, um, about my eco-anxiety at the time. And she said something that completely changed my perspective, which was that eco-anxiety was not a weakness, but a kind of evidence of our humanity. It was proof that we are awake to the issues and that you know, much of the climate crisis, we're in the situation because we've become so good as a culture at numbing ourselves to the issues and kind of sleepwalking toward the edge of this, you know, climate cliff. And so that eco-anxiety is healthy and it's normal. But as you said, we need to create um, space for the other feelings as well. And we also need to safeguard those feelings so that we don't burn out and so that that eco-anxiety doesn't tip into that ecophobia. But mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from you, Maya Rosen, particularly in light of these conversations that you've had with these incredible, you know, frontline activists around the world. Um, how do you perceive that eco-anxiety might be different um, for those of us living in a bubble of relative climate privilege versus those young people who are living the direct impacts of the climate crisis and ecological crisis today? Um... Yeah, I, th I think um, for me, at least, which maybe this rings slightly false, but for me, the phrase eco-anxiety has always felt like it has a degree of separation from the reality of the issues that we're dealing with. Um, like most people I know who have really severe eco-anxiety, it's a very existential sort of um, upset, you know, the worry that we don't have a future. Um, and I'd say a lot of the people I talked to didn't really feel like they had the time, um, you know, for eco-anxiety. They had the t time to be worried about the future because a lot of them felt very busy dealing with the now. Um, and I think it's interesting you mentioned about young activists in particular because I've always, um, I've always thought it was really cool, um, you know, so many young people getting really involved because I... For the majority of the time I was doing stuff, I didn't really know any other young people who were involved in these issues. And then suddenly, you know, Greta Thunberg comes along, Youth Strikes for Future comes along, um, Youth Strikes for Climate, sorry. And suddenly there were like thousands, well, in Europe, hundreds of thousands of people my age pouring out into the streets. I thought that was, well, it is, it was, it was really exciting. Um, and it reshaped politics around climate change. Um, but when I was writing the book, I, would talk, I was talking to people who were like eight, nine years old when they started being, you know, they started activism. Um, and for these people, it was, you, you know, it was, it was a very tangible threat. Um, a lot of the people from indigenous communities in particular I spoke to, they were talking about like experiencing something, watching you know, their family and their community struggle and deciding that this couldn't continue, that they had to help um, the people that they loved. And I think it was that degree more personal. Um, and I think suddenly I felt quite sad that so many of these kids had been so young when they started. I didn't find it inspirational anymore. Um, but I, th I think in general, um for a lot of them I, I I suppose what I'm trying to say is it wasn't this existential threat because there were like tangible things so I was talking to people from like the Marshall Islands who were saying like you know in the day it's getting 
too hot for us to be outside. You know, the water level's rising, our islands are getting smaller. Um, we're trying to do things to deal with this right now. And we're trying to do political campaigning to deal with this right now, um, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I think in some ways, I think it was a real reality check for me. And it has been for other people who I've talked to who have read the book, actually. Um, because I think so much of our environmental campaigning is so detached from people and their own experiences. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think that's another reason that it was really important for me to write that. And um, yeah, I think it could be really interesting for people to read it as well. It just, I don't know, I suddenly felt very, I, I suppose very Western in terms of my perspective, like, you know, the way I was talking about, you know, flooding happening in 10 years time or, you know, heat waves getting worse in 15 or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think the other thing, sorry, just quickly, is I found it really interesting you mentioning being very hopeful about like a climate change conference and then feeling very, very let down. Because um, I think like a really important experience for me was being like, like 13 when the Paris agreement happened um I remember it was during my Christmas holidays and I was so excited um because I was too young to remember that there had been any climate change conferences before Paris um and for me as a kid all I was seeing was our world leaders coming together and saying we're going to do something about climate change and I was sat there and I was like they're going to do something about climate change. This is amazing. Um, and then obviously they haven't. Um, and so I think that's an experience a lot of people our age have had is sort of just feeling totally let down by our leaders again and again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as young people, you know, across generations, we're kind of raised to place our trust in these institutions that we're told are there to look after us, you know, whether that is the government, right, or business, or even the education system. Like the number of young people I've talked to in the UK, for example, um, who feel so let down by their school system and the fact that mm. climate change has been, you know, an hour long geography session um, in the school year. And exactly as you said it's taught about as this you know long long far off kind of threats um that will affect us in the future rather than okay well here are the communities who are already being affected here's the you know climate tipping points that are already locked in even if we completely stop emitting everything tomorrow um so it's this real kind of wake up moment that a lot of young people have to go through where we we confront the issues and we have to give up a bit of that faith in in those leaders and those decision makers. And I suppose that's then the invitation to not just fall into like nihilism or despair. Um, and what you said is it rings absolutely true with what we've heard as well. You know, talking, we've talked to students in over 50 countries now around the world, um, from Tel Aviv through Jakarta, New York to Managua. And by and large, the young people who are already experiencing climate impact say, 
you know, we don't have the privilege of falling into climate doomism or climate mm -hmm. despair because we just need to respond and, and we just need to act. Uh, and equally, I think eco-anxiety experienced by, you know, those of us in a bubble of climate privilege is a really important vehicle for waking up to the issues and beginning to connect with the lived experience of those young people who are, you know, already on the ground and, and already having to kind of carry that fight with them. But one other question that I had for you, Maya Rose, um, as people go out and pick up this book and, and read the stories of, of those young people on the front lines, you know, what is one thing that you would like us to take away um, from reading it and from, from connecting to those incredible young individuals? Um, I mean, it's kind of cheating, but I think there are a few things that I really wanted people to take away from the book. Um, and the first one is like one of the reasons I made it technically for kids or one of the reasons I made the book as it is, you know, with the bright fonts and the, the you know, the big illustrations and the way it's written and stuff is because I wanted it to be really accessible. Um, I feel like so many of our environmental texts are so like um, full of various terms and written for, you know, quite a high um, reading age and things like that and I wanted anyone to be able to pick it up and read it and feel inspired um, including children um, I think the way that we talk to our children about these issues um, is so disempowering and so demoralizing um, in my experience at least I think you know kids are always told if you're not old enough to vote then your opinion doesn't really matter and um, you know our leaders definitely don't care about what you have to say and so I felt like um, you know getting people to read these stories of people who didn't really care if people wanted to listen to them or not they took it upon themselves to make uh, this world a better place I, I wanted people to feel inspired by that um, but I, yeah, I want people to feel hopeful as well. You know, like we've been talking a lot about eco-anxiety and doomism and stuff like that. I want people to read it and think actually, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of people just like the people in the book um, out there who are also trying to make this world a better place. There are as many good people as there are bad people. Um, and I hope that if people do feel inspired and they do feel hopeful, um, they'll join the movement and they'll become some of the people trying to make this world a better place. And exactly as you said, I think so much of our climate messaging today is kind of stuck on sounding the alarm. Mm. <laughs> and I think particularly in the age of social media where doom scrolling is a thing now, yeah. um, it's very easy to get sucked into that vortex of, the kind of dystopianism and terrifying stories and you know a friend jack harry's recently said climate change is the story that we failed to tell and i could not agree more because you know we're not platforming uh well enough the individuals who are leading the fight the frontline solutions that you spoke to earlier that community resilience and it is that you know kind of resilience in the face of these issues that is needed more than ever before. We need to look in the face of those difficult feelings, but we also need to come out the other side of them, you know, and connect to the community and agency and vision. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel really 
sad and resentful <laughs> toward you know having inherited these challenges and and having to work on the issues every day not feeling that there is a choice but on other days i feel incredibly lucky that i have the privilege of being an activist and and also that i have a chance to think about the world that we are inheriting you know and and the climate crisis is this invitation to rethink so much of how we live and breathe and innovate and that's an opportunity to you know meet like minds and curious individuals and create new solutions so i'm very very excited for more and more people to pick up this book and to hear the incredible stories that you've worked so hard to platform as a final very tangible um question where can people find the book and how can they continue following and supporting the work that you do my rose um yeah thank you it's been really lovely to chat to you today actually um in terms of the book, you can find it on all, in all the normal places you buy a book and also on my website, birdgirluk.com. Um, and if anyone's interested in following me along, um, I'm birdgirluk um, on everything online. Or you can look up my name, Myra is Craig. Um, but thank you so much for watching. Amazing. Thank you so much, Maya Rose. And thank you, everyone, for supporting the Yaya San Mudra Swari Saraswati Patrons Program and to the festival's partners who made the Ubud Readers and Writers Festival possible. You can follow at Ubud Writers Festival on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit ubudwritersfestival.com for more information about the program. I am Clover Hogan and thank you everyone for tuning in today. Bye-bye. <laughs>